We've been studying the book of Ruth for a number of weeks now, and here we are at the end. This true story is a wonderful love story, but it's more than just a tale of romance. It's actually a tale of redemption and the people who are committed to securing it. Ruth the Moabite loves her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she's willing to turn her whole life around so as to look after Naomi. Uh, Boaz is a man who loves God and expresses that by caring for others around him, even at great cost to himself. He is fully committed to the task of redeeming his relatives. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful to have someone who was that committed to looking after you? To have someone who was committed to seeking your rescue, to rescue you from trouble, uh, to secure a bright future for you. Well, there is someone who's that committed to you. God himself. God is committed to redeeming his people. And this will become clear as we study Ruth chapter 4, as we see the actions of Boaz, who is an example of commitment, and how that points to God and his commitment. God is committed to redeeming his people. As we look at this chapter, we're going to look at three Ps, the, the plan, the parallel, and the purpose of redemption in this book. So let's get stuck into the first one and see Boaz's plan. Now, if you are taking down notes, you might like to write down what that plan is. It's to redeem the family of Elimelech. Elimelech's widow, Naomi, has returned to Israel, to Bethlehem, with Ruth the Moabite, and she's the widow of Naomi's son, Marlon. And these two widows are fighting for survival. And as we saw in chapter 3 in a previous sermon, Naomi decides to help Ruth by trying to find rest for her in another man's home. She tries to set her up with Boaz, but in an unexpected twist, Ruth asks Boaz to marry her as a guardian redeemer. As Aaron pointed out two weeks ago, Ruth could have just married Boaz and started a new family with him, become Mrs. Boaz, but instead she asks that he would redeem her family, the family of Elimelech. In chapter 3, verse 9, she says this, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Well, Boaz agrees to redeem the family of Elimelech, but there's a slight problem. See, there's a closer relative, as mentioned in verse 12, and so Boaz has to hatch a cunning plan. In the morning, Boaz sends Ruth back to Naomi, and he sets off on his mission. And we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Have a look if you've got a Bible in front of you. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then in verse 2, Boaz grabs 10 of the elders who are hanging around there at the gate of Bethlehem. Now, why were these 10 men just hanging around there? Well, in biblical times, the town gate was where business and legal matters were conducted. If someone wanted to have a case decided by the elders, a legal case or something else, they would go to the town gate. And so this shows us that Boaz is determined to deal with this issue quickly, but to also do it publicly and follow all the right steps. Check out verse 3 and verse 4 to see what happens next. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I'll know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Let's just pause here and think about what's going on. First of all, this actually raises a lot of questions. Like, how come this is the first time we've heard that Naomi actually has land? And how does Boaz know that Naomi's intending to sell it? And if she was so desperate, why didn't she sell it sooner? Well, sorry to say, we don't have time to answer all those questions now, but get along to your gospel communities during the week or come and speak to me later. Uh, The second matter to think about is this whole idea of redemption. As Aaron pointed out the other week, it's described in the law of Israel as recorded in Leviticus 25. After God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he gave them laws before he sent them into the promised land. And some of these laws were designed to ensure that the Israelites didn't lose their redemption, that things didn't go backwards. So listen to Leviticus 25, verses 23 and 24, and you'll see it up on the screen as well. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. See, the redemption of the land was to ensure that no family in Israel lost their land. So listen now to verse 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So it was the role of the nearest relative to redeem land that may have been sold so that it remained in the family. And this relative was called in Hebrew a goel, which we translate as kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. And so that's actually what's happening here in Ruth chapter 4. This nearest relative that Boaz is talking to, he had first responsibility to purchase Elimelech's land so that it didn't leave the family. And so this would ensure that Naomi could keep living off it and she wouldn't have to sell herself into slavery perhaps to survive. See, this is all about ensuring that God's great act of redemption that he did during the Exodus wouldn't be undone and reversed. But Boaz's plan goes awry because the nearer relative is actually happy to redeem the land. That is, until Boaz reveals an extra piece of information in verse 5. So if you're taking down notes, you might like to write down this sub-point, the twist in the plan, Ruth will be married. Have a look at verses 5 and 6 in your Bibles. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Well, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, what on earth is going on here? Why is Ruth being married off? I mean, I've heard of a house and land package, but a wife and land package, that's pretty distasteful, isn't it? 
Well, commentators point out that what's happening here is a levirate marriage. There's actually another custom found in the law of Israel. You might like to write down a Bible reference, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 10. And we're going to put it up on the screen as well. So this is the law on levirate marriage. And just to complicate it, you won't see that word levirate because it's a Latin word. It comes from the word, I don't even want to say it right, levia. Uh, and it's not found in the Bible, but it's Latin for husband's brother. And you'll see why that's important as we read this out. And also, I want you to note the consequence for disobeying this law. I'll read it out now. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. So this is called a levirate marriage, because it involves the husband's brother. If a husband dies without any children, then his brother was obligated to marry his widow to raise up an heir. If he refused to do that, he'd be unsandaled and spat on. So, generally, people say that what's happening here in Ruth is a legally required levirate marriage. The nearer relative... He hadn't factored in Ruth because he assumed that he'd have to marry Naomi, who was past childbearing age. But then he learns about Ruth and everything changes. See, he'd be obligated to have a child with her and this child would grow up to actually inherit back the land of Elimelech. So in other words, this guy thought that he could buy the land take care of it until Naomi died without an heir, and then as the nearest relative, he would inherit the land and get to keep it. Good investment, right? But then Ruth presents a twist because he might find himself having to pay for land that he would never get to keep because it would go to Ruth's child, Elimelech's heir. Now, there are some issues here that are raised about the godliness of this man. He just seems to be thinking about his own inheritance. And there seems to be a lack of concern for the fate of his relatives. There's a much bigger issue here. You see, I don't think that this was an obligatory levirate marriage. For starters, the law in Deuteronomy speaks about brothers raising up an heir, not simply any male relative possible. It doesn't go on endlessly. Also, uh, how on earth did this nearer relative not already know about Ruth? Bethlehem was a small place. Surely he would have known about her. And if this man didn't think he had to marry Ruth, then how can Boaz try to compel him to marry Ruth? You know, what possible laws are in operation here? 
And finally, the concept of raising up an heir is not so much about redemption. Remember, redemption is about restoring something back to its rightful owner. Rather, raising up an heir is about securing a family line. Of course, they're related. But the brother-in-law in the Leverate marriage is not referred to as a goel. He's not called a redeemer. Now, of course, after Ruth proposes marriage in chapter 3, Boaz does speak about redeeming her, redeeming her family, but it's about the land, not about the marriage. So there are lots of issues with this interpretation of Boaz's plan. So I want to propose an alternative interpretation, which I think makes much more sense. And I will say, if you don't disagree with me, that's okay. You don't have to agree with me. I'm just going to explain why I think we should take it another way. Unfortunately, part of the argument is dependent on the Hebrew words. And I'm always reluctant to raise issues about the accuracy of our English translations because I don't want to give the impression that we can't trust our Bible. We can trust our Bible, but sometimes there are just little differences we might debate about that are quite minor and they don't really change salvation and the key things. But I think that here in verse 5 of chapter 4 of Ruth, there's a better way to translate the original Hebrew. I'm not going to go into all the details now. If you're interested and excited about that sort of thing, go to the welcome table afterwards and I've got some printouts explaining it all. But let me put up the two alternatives on the screen now so you can see the different ways of thinking about it. And the key phrase is, you acquire. In Hebrew, that's just a single word. And it's actually a bit tricky to translate because it could also be possibly translated as, I acquire. So most translators assume it's the former, but a minority assume it's the latter. Go with that. And this latter view then changes things because Boaz is saying that the other man, he can buy the land, but on that day, Boaz himself intends to marry Ruth. Two things going on. So I'm going to give you five reasons as to why I think it's better to take chapter, uh, verse 5 as saying, I acquire, as in Boaz is saying, I will marry Ruth. Number one, it actually fits better to view this as a voluntary arrangement. See, there was no legal obligation for Ruth to be married because there were no brothers left. Yet Boaz is volunteering to engage in a Leverite-type marriage to raise up a child to be a Limelech's heir. Number two, it actually explains why the nearer relative is surprised. Of course he'd be surprised if it was voluntary. He didn't anticipate that Ruth would want to do this, or that Boaz would want to do this with Ruth. Number three, it explains why Boaz in chapter three is happy to marry Ruth but first has to sort out the land. See, their marriage can only be a redemptive marriage if he's also able to redeem the land as well as marrying Ruth. Number four, it explains why Boaz thinks Ruth is doing an act of great kindness. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says this to her, This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So the earlier kindness that Ruth showed was to Naomi by caring for her. And now she's showing kindness to Naomi again by volunteering to have a child who would be considered a Limelech's heir and thus a help to Naomi. Boaz acknowledges that Ruth could have legitimately picked any of the single men in Bethlehem 
but she chose the one single man who could have this special type of marriage and be a blessing to Naomi and the family of Elimelech. Number five, it explains why the narrator clarifies the custom in verse 8. Check it out. Uh, Once the nearer relative decides not to redeem the land, we read this. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now, do you remember what happened in Deuteronomy 25 if a man refused to take his brother's widow to raise up an heir? What would the widow do? She'd go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off his sandal and spit in his face, and then his family line forever would be known by the catchy phrase, the family of the unsandaled. But that's not what's happening here. That is not this type of unsandling in Ruth 4. Instead, we have this editorial note in verse 7 to explain what's going on. Have a look. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Perhaps the idea is, uh, I give you permission to walk on my land, here's my sandal. So the author, he knows that his first readers probably wouldn't have been familiar with this old custom of handing over your sandal. And I suspect that he did this, he wrote this note to make sure that as we read this, we're not thinking that this was because the man had rejected an obligatory leverate marriage. Now, many of you are probably thinking, Adam, why does this matter? Why are you getting so excited about this? Why spend all this time arguing that verse 5 could be translated better? Well, if you're not fussed, that's okay, don't worry about it. But from my perspective, I actually think it makes better better sense of the passage, and it means my head doesn't hurt as much, and I like it when my head doesn't hurt. I think the Bible should actually make sense. Secondly, it's actually better storytelling. See, it makes the twist more of a surprise. It's so unexpected. There was no obligation here. It's voluntary. And so it reveals the great subtlety and ingenuity of how this story was crafted, which is exactly what we'd expect of biblical literature. And thirdly, this approach more clearly reveals the loving kindness of the characters involved. See, the whole book is a story about commitment and loyalty and kinship. Interpreting verse 5 in this way fits better with the aim of the book and more clearly reveals just how kind and faithful Boaz and Ruth are. See, Boaz is not a trickster who's trying to trick this nearer relative out of getting some land. Instead, Boaz is revealing himself to be a man of noble character, a man of integrity. See, instead of being about duty, these actions are about showing grace and extravagant love. They reveal to us what God is like, the God who is fully committed to redeeming his people, even at great cost to himself. God doesn't do it because he has to. God does it because he chooses to. Well, Boaz completes his plan with these words in verses 9 and 10. Have a look. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown, 
Today you are witnesses. Boaz has revealed himself to be a shrewd man who ensures that his plan comes to fruition while always working within God's law and Israel's customs. God is committed to redeeming his people and Boaz is the means of accomplishing that for this particular family. And more than that, Boaz shows himself to be a man of great kindness. So he goes above and beyond what's required of him. He's willing to risk his own inheritance. He's willing to secure blessings for Ruth and Naomi. He's even showing kindness to the dead men by making sure that their family line would not die out. Well, now that the plan has been completed, we move on to the next P. We turn to the parallel. It's found in verses 11 and 12. So if you're taking notes, you might like to write down this sub-point. God works in the midst of human failing and weakness. Check out verses 11 and 12. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now at first this might sound like a wonderful blessing to pronounce upon someone. But when you actually read the stories that lie behind this, there's a different angle there. It actually also gives an interesting theological perspective. So let's start with Rachel and Leah. You can read about them in Genesis 29 and 30. And they were sisters and they both married Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And if you read the story, you see there was jealousy between these two wives. And to cut a long story short, they engaged in a sort of childbearing competition, thus bearing 12 sons for Jacob. These 12 sons then became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So while Rachel and Leah did indeed build up the family of Israel, it wasn't always a happy process. The second reference in Ruth 4 is to Tamar and Judah, who were the parents of Perez. I have to give you a warning here. This story is actually very shocking. You can read all about it in Genesis 38. And basically, it speaks of a leverate situation even before the Leverite law was given in Deuteronomy. Now, Judah, he was the son of Jacob and Leah that we've just spoken of. And this is a bit complicated, so we've got a slide we're going to put up just to help you see how the family works together. It's not the whole family tree, but I've just put the key people there. So you ready? Judah had a son named Ur. Ur married Tamar. But Ur died and Tamar was childless. Ur's brother Onan was supposed to have a child with Tamar to raise up an offspring for the dead brother Ur, but Onan refused. Judah didn't help in this situation either, so eventually, in an act of desperation, Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced Judah, her father-in-law, and Perez was born as a result. What a bizarre story to actually use to bless someone when they've just proposed. I mean, please don't refer to that in any wedding speeches you might ever make. But this story actually makes sense 
in the context for two reasons. Number one, you can see that it speaks of a levirate marriage, that sort of arrangement where a child is born to continue a dead man's family line. And number two, the, inhabit- the inhabitants of Bethlehem were mostly descendants of Perez, who was the most famous son of Judah. And so for them, for those living in Bethlehem, it was kind of a logical connection. But from our perspective, I think there's a bigger theological issue going on here. There's another parallel between these stories and the situation in the book of Ruth. God works in the midst of human failing and weakness. See, despite Elimelech's sin in taking his family away from the promised land to live in Moab, despite the bitterness of Naomi, who sometimes seems very conflicted, despite the presence of a foreigner, a Moabite woman in the promised land, despite all of these things, God can work to change situations and bring about great blessings. Human sin, human weakness, human greed, human despair cannot prevent God from accomplishing his great plan because God is committed to redeeming his people. And this leads us to the purpose, our third P. Boaz had a plan. That plan had a parallel to the lives of his ancestors and this paralleled plan had a purpose. An immediate purpose which blessed a single family but also a much greater purpose which blessed families all around the world. So our first sub-point under the purpose is about this plan of redemption, how it was intended to secure a future for Naomi and Ruth. Have a look at verses 13 to 15 in your Bibles. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he had made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better than even seven sons, has given him birth. The women of Bethlehem praise God for his provision of a guardian redeemer for Naomi. But they're not speaking about Boaz as the guardian redeemer. They mean the baby, because see how they say that Ruth has given him birth. This baby will grow up and care for Naomi and ensure that the family line of Elimelech continues. He'll be there to redeem the family, to keep them secure. Naomi returned to Bethlehem, bitter and empty, having lost her husband and her two sons. But the women rightly recognise that Naomi did not return with nothing. She had Ruth, a woman of noble character, who's not just better than two sons, but seven sons. Naomi's future is now secure. This is such a lovely story, and it's so cleverly written. And part of the genius of this book is that it reveals another purpose to this plan of redemption that Boaz had. So it's intended to reveal the heart of God. It's our second sub-point, to reveal the heart of God. Have a look again at verse 13. Do you notice that it's the Lord who enables Ruth to have a baby? 
Now, we don't have time to go into the detail here, but God doesn't actually speak at all in this book. Yet he's active all throughout it, ensuring that his purpose is achieved. Ruth and Boaz, they are channels for God's blessing and they give us a window into the heart of God. He's a generous and gracious God who seeks to bring life to people. He gave Israel laws to ensure that they would prosper. He ensured that individuals were cared for, even widows from foreign lands could be cared for in Israel. And just as Boaz is fully committed to redeeming Naomi and Ruth, so too is God. The Lord was committed to maintaining Israel's redemption from slavery. He intervened in their history to ensure that this happened. Even in the dark times of the judges, when this true story took place, God shows that he is kind, merciful, powerful and active. But there's one more purpose of this plan which we need to think about. This small story of redemption is set within a wider story of redemption. And the writer of this book gives us a glimpse right at the end. Have a look at verses 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We see now that the birth of Obed was not just a blessing to Naomi, but it leads to the birth of David, the future king of Israel. We then end the book with a genealogy from Perez, that famous ancestor, down to David. So Boaz's plan has another purpose. It's our third sub-point, to point to God's wider plan of redemption. How do we know that God is committed to redeeming his people? We know because he works in the small details of people's lives to ensure that his plan to bless the world will be fulfilled. Think about it. Ruth and Boaz would have had no idea that their great-grandson would grow up to be Israel's greatest king. They were just ordinary people living ordinary lives Yet from them came an extraordinary man. They had no idea, yet God could do that. King David was a great king. He united the tribes of Israel. He brought peace and helped them to have great victories. He secured a site for the future temple that his son Solomon built. He gifted his people with countless psalms and songs to help them spiritually. And so the first readers of this book would have marveled at the God who was at work to bless Israel. But as later readers, as those of us who are reading this centuries later, we can take a step back even further, can't we? Because we know that the genealogy of the end of Ruth reappears in the Bible. Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus. And Jesus is a descendant of Ruth and Boaz. Jesus is great King David's greatest son and he's at the heart of God's big plan of redemption. Jesus is the saving king who came to redeem people from every tribe and nation of the world. He buys people back from slavery to sin, slavery to death and the purchase price that he paid was his own life. 
He died on the cross to purchase our redemption. And he rose from the grave to secure our redemption. And his greater act of redemption doesn't simply preserve the names of individuals or of family. Rather, he preserves the individuals themselves. He secures eternal life. His greater act of redemption isn't just about securing a field for us somewhere, a little patch of land in the Middle East. He secures the ultimate promised land for us, the new heavens and earth. All who put their faith in Jesus are guaranteed to be redeemed. There's a lot more that we could say about the book of Ruth and how it points us to Jesus. Aaron and Dan have done a great job of that in their previous sermons. So I want to finish now by reflecting on the wonderful truth that God is committed to redeeming his people. Here are three ideas. Number one, it's actually easy to join God's people and to enjoy the redemption that he has secured. You simply trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him, just like Ruth put her faith in the God of Naomi. If you haven't done this, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, then please do so. Speak to me, speak to someone else about what it means and how you do it. Number two, if you are a Christian, then you are part of God's people and he will ensure that your redemption is completed. Nothing can undo your status. Nothing can prevent God from getting you to the glorious future that awaits you. Number three, God actually cares about the small details of your life. He's able to use them to bring about his plan to bless the world. There's no such thing as an ordinary person. God will use each and every one of us. And this is good, because it means even our smallest act of kindness will not be wasted. Even our smallest act of loyalty will not be wasted. And so we can serve God every day, serve others every day with confidence. Because it's actually hard to live for God, isn't it? It's hard to love other people. But we can take heart because even though we won't always see how God is at work, God always will be at work. Well, that's it. That's the book of Ruth. It's more than a tale of romance, isn't it? It's a wonderful story of love, kindness, and loyalty which reveals to us that God is committed to redeeming his people. So may we all take comfort in that and find rest like Ruth did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story which teaches us so much about you, about ourselves and our redemption. Help us to all come to Jesus to be redeemed to find rest and security in him. Amen.